Psalm 20 is what we'll be working through this morning as we return to our uh, slowly chipping away a psalm at a time to get through the whole book of Psalms. And Psalm 20 is not about you. Psalm 20 is not about you. It is an amazing chapter of the Bible and is incredibly relevant to you. But it is not about you. If we misinterpret this, uh, we, can, we can get it all wrong. We can insert ourselves into the story where we don't belong. Now, I want to illustrate this by, by starting out with another Bible story, a well-known Bible story that we often get wrong, but when rightly understood, it's actually even a better story than maybe the story we thought we knew. And that story is the story of David and Goliath. You heard of that one? When we read the story of David and Goliath, right, the story of the meek shepherd boy who takes down the giant, who do we assume that we are in the story? Who do we assume that we are? Well, we're not Goliath. He's the bad guy. We're not God. He's God. We must be David, right? Are we David? The one who slays the giant in his life? And the application for us then from this story is to slay the giants in our lives, whether that be bullies or mean bosses or stress or financial struggle. Well, I have a question for you. Is that accurate? Is that who we are? Because I don't think so. When I think of my own life, or if I think of the life of even the strongest Christians that I know, we don't slay a lot of giants on our own. There's not much that we can defeat on our own power. And so what's a better option? If we were a character in the story, who might we be? Well, I would suggest that who we would be in the story of David and Goliath is the cowering Israelites. Those that are hiding. Those that are facing a foe that they can't bear to take on on their own. But are hiding because they don't know what to do about it. I don't know about you, that resonates a lot more with me. But instead of a a giant and an advancing army, who is our opposition? Who is our foe if we were to apply this to us today? Well, sin is our greatest foe. Sin is what stands between us and God. It breaks down the peace that we could know with our God. But then the story changes. An unlikely hero comes onto the scene. Remember, it's not one of us because we're still cowering, unable to take care of what we need to take care of. This unlikely hero stands In our place, he comes in and stands where we should be standing and defeats the evil that we couldn't bear to defeat ourselves. And in the story of David and Goliath, the unlikely hero is David. But in the story of our lives, the one who came and stood in our place, the one who is the center of the story of David and Goliath and the center of the entire Bible is Jesus. And so you see how this is still great news. It doesn't ruin the story of David and Goliath by any means. It makes it even better than having to try to slay the giants in our own lives. You see, the giant is still defeated. The giant is still defeated, but there's a promise that one will come to save his people. It's a different road to the same destination. And in the case of the story of David and Goliath, the fact that this Savior comes is better news than just a weight that sits on our shoulders of us needing to just be brave enough and strong enough to save ourselves. 
And in the case of the gospel, it is much better news that Jesus came to save us than us just having to get our act together and save ourselves. So as I said, our passage this morning is not the story of David and Goliath. We're going to be going through Psalm 20. But it's a good reminder for us that just like the story of David and Goliath, we can insert ourselves wrongly into passages in the Bible that are not about us, uh, but they are for us. And I think you'll see that as we go down this different road to the same destination, we'll find immense hope, even more hope than we might get at first glance in a first reading of Psalm 20. And so as I read through Psalm 20, I want you to look for the times when it, it, it addresses you. It says you. We can see if you've already turned there in your Bibles, in verse 1, it says, may the Lord answer you. Now, I just want to remind you that that is not you, okay? I know that's confusing. But who is the you? Well, you'll see that as we work through this, this text, it reveals itself that this is a prayer that God's people pray for God's chosen king. This is a prayer that God's people pray for God's chosen king, the anointed one. Here, King David. But rattling around in the back of our minds, or maybe it should be on the forefront of our minds, should be that this king who is the descendant of David, the one who would have an everlasting kingdom, is our true king, King Jesus. And so Psalm 20, even though it's not about you, like we may want it to be at first glance, because there's a lot of prosperity language, there's a lot of hope in Psalm 20. Although it's not about you directly, it is for you. Because we worship a trustworthy God. The big idea from Psalm 20 is Yahweh's promises to the king give us confidence today. Yahweh's promises to the king give us confidence today. The confidence that Psalm 20 gives us is a trust that is rooted in who God is. It's rooted in what he's done, and it's rooted in the promises that he's made and the promises that he has kept. And so much of what we see from Psalm 20 is, is so intrinsically linked to the language we use because it is the language of the Bible. And this trust is rooted and grounded in God's name. You're going to see that come up a lot, God's name seen it already in, in both the, the prayers that have been prayed and in, in, in the songs that we've sung. God's name means something. And Psalm 20 makes it very clear that God's name is important. And so kids and adults, you can pay attention too. But kids, I want you to listen for all the references to God's name. All the references to God's name. Some will be really obvious because where we see the Lord in all capitals in our Bibles, that's where the original author used God's personal covenant name and wrote the name Yahweh. I'll do my best to say Yahweh when we get to those uh, words. You'll be able to see it there. But you'll also see a few other times in Psalm 20 that it references the name of God or the name of the Lord. Okay, so I want you to watch for those and we'll see why that's so significant in uh, Psalm 20. And so, would you stand with me as I read Psalm 20 aloud? This is God's holy and true word. And if you believe that to be true, when we finish reading, I'll say this is God's word. And I would encourage you to say along with me, thanks be to God. So let's hear God's word from Psalm 20. To the choir master, a psalm of David. May Yahweh answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary 
and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. Selah. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners. May Yahweh fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that Yahweh saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven and with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of Yahweh, our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Yahweh, save the king. May he answer us when we call. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Amen. Take a seat. Did you notice how that, that word we were supposed to be looking for through the service, trust? Trust is grounded in who God is. And this gives us our first point that we'll be working through as we go through Psalm 20 this morning. Our first point is trusting in God depends on knowing God's character. Trusting in God depends on knowing God's character. We see the first part of this psalm is a prayer for the king in the day of trouble. The context for this and the language that is used is that the king, again, is the you. When we see you, Y-O-U, we, we know that that is the king that is being prayed for. Uh, and this language that's used of, of the Lord answering in the day of trouble is, is common of that for impending battle. So this was a prayer that God's people would pray for their king as battle is on the horizon. Now, why would the people be praying for their king? Why would they be praying for their king like this in the day of trouble? Well, the success of the king is tied directly to the success of the nation. The king will bring blessing through the defeat of evil. And we'll look more at the king in our second point, but for now, it's important not to miss that the whole prayer is grounded in this trust, this trust that, that depends on knowing God's character. Now, the prayers that are prayed in Psalm 20 are, are grounded in this, of, of, of God's character, who he is. Remember, so much of this is captured in, in the repeated emphasis of God's name. To refer to God's name is not simply a name. It's not just a title. As we often think of names, it's meant to capture who he is, his whole character, his whole essence, his whole being. And so to appeal to or even refer to God's name is to appeal to who he is, who he has revealed himself to be. It's to, it's to, it's to appeal to the promises that he's made. It's to appeal to who he is. And so we see this most simply as we work through uh, Psalm 20 in these times when we see God's divine revealed name, Yahweh, used. As I mentioned, every time you see the Lord in all caps as you read through the Bible, that's, that's the name of God. The name that, that God used to reveal himself to his people. And that name language triggers a lot. When I say the name Kevin, someone probably pops into your mind. I don't know who it is, but you think of a Kevin. 
Maybe it's a good memory that then comes to your mind. Kevin, oh yeah, my old best buddy, Kevin. Or maybe it's, it's a tough memory that comes to mind. You think of, of someone who hurt you named Kevin. Names carry something with them. I learned this uh, in a difficult way in high school. So I went into grade 11 chemistry, uh, and I'm no chemist, uh, but I went into grade 11 chemistry, and the teacher was so excited because she said, oh, Heidi's little brother is here. I've got another wreck in my class. This is going to be good. And it was not good. Right? She had this idea of, of what came with the wreck name, and I absolutely disappointed her. But she had this image just from the character of my sister in her class that when, when she saw my name on the attendance sheet, she probably thought, oh, this is going to be a gem. But she was sadly mistaken. But my lovely wife and I sat next to each other in that homeroom, so not, it wasn't all bad. Um, but names carry with it something. It, they, they carry with it something. They, they trigger us to think of certain things. And for God's people, the divine name Yahweh triggers memory after memory of a covenant-making, promise-keeping, mighty God. So when they see or hear or say the name Yahweh, all that floods in is this tidal wave of God's faithfulness. And it's how we should read the Bible too. There's so much hope grounded in the name of God. It's who he is. We see that the hope that's, that's undergirding this entire psalm is even noticed if we back up further, even outside of the psalm itself, and look at the collection of the Psalter, the whole book of psalms. We see the psalm that comes before is Psalm 19. Now, it's been a number of weeks since we looked at it, but you may remember, what's Psalm 19 about? Well, it's about God revealing himself, revealing himself in nature. We see in Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So creation is part of God's revelation of his beautiful character. But then it gets even more zoomed in, and we see in verses, this is again in, in chapter 19, verses 7, 8, 9, 10, we see that God's instruction, his law is perfect. It's reviving to the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. It just goes on and on, this big list that just stacks emphasis on emphasis on emphasis of how God's word, the revelation of himself, is perfect. And that's what sets the stage for then Psalm 20, this deep trust that is grounded in God's character and his name, who he is. We see it so clearly. We'll spend more time just even looking at verse 1. Uh, verse 1 says, May Yahweh answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. Trusting in God is grounded in who he is. And we see this appeal to the God of Jacob. The God of Jacob. Why talk about the God of Jacob? What is the significance of that expression? What is the significance of that name or title? Well, it's, it's providentially good timing. We just worked through the book of Obadiah last week. And in Obadiah, uh, we talked about what it points to, what it reminds us of, is the, the story of Jacob fearing for his life because Esau, his twin brother, wanted him dead. Now, Esau didn't end up uh, killing Jacob, 
when they met. And so Jacob was very grateful to God for that fact. And so in Genesis 35, uh, we see God speaking to Jacob, and then Jacob speaking to his family, those around him, talking about this situation where he was delivered from Esau. Uh, This is Genesis 35. I'll read verses 1 and 2. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. And then Jacob speaks to his family. Then let us arise and go to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. The God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound familiar as we think about this reference to the God of Jacob? It points us right to this verse about God answering in the day of trouble. Again, verse 1 of chapter 20. May Yahweh answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. And so this is what Psalm 20 says. It's what Psalm 20 verses 1 should conjure up uh, for people. As we hear the name of God, the name of the God of Jacob, it leads God's people to pray. Just as the God of Jacob delivered him from his day of trouble, God, we pray that you would deliver our king in his day of trouble. You, Yahweh, our covenant God. And we see that as this psalm unravels, each petition that is, is prayed is grounded in knowing God. It's grounded in the trust that exists in a God who, who makes promises and keeps promises. We see that it's God who's the one that's able to send help uh, in verse 2, or, or the humble submission that's demonstrated in bringing these sacrifices and offerings to God in verse 3. Trusting in God depends on knowing God. And so Psalm 20 is a prayer of God's people. And so it's worth us thinking, how do we pray? When we pray, where are our prayers grounded? It's so easy to pray way different prayers than what we see in Psalm 20. It's often why we fail to pray, because we don't see God the way he really is. We have a distorted view of who God is. It makes it impossible for us to pray like this. If we see God as a genie who's able to grant wishes to us, well, we're going to just go to him with laundry list type prayers. We're going to go to him maybe when we only think that we need him. Or maybe you see God as, as more of a strict schoolmaster, and we're afraid to go to him because we know uh, if we raise our hand or if we bring our, our needs and our wants to him, we're going to get smacked with a ruler. If we see God as small, we wouldn't dare ask him to work in powerful ways. We settle for thanking him for our dinner, if that. But when our prayers are grounded in who God is, what he's said and what he's done, things start to change. We can appeal to his character, his justice, his mercy, his love. When we consider how powerful he is, we can appeal to him to work in ways that are beyond our imagination even. When we consider what he has told us in his word, we can appeal to the promises that he's made. When we see the way that God has promised to care for us, we can ask him for help. We can ask him to change us, to shape us, to mold us, to work in our lives, again, in ways that are beyond all that we could ask for or even imagine. 
But if we don't know God, how will we pray these kinds of prayers? So you can grow in this by reading God's word, getting to know him through his word. You can grow in this by praying with others. You can grow in this by reading good books. You can go grow in this by going to God and asking him for help. Ask for his help to walk more closely with him, to know him more, to trust him more. And don't be content to stand at a distance. These kinds of, of confident and trusting prayers are modeled here for us in Scripture, and they're the kind of prayers we, we need to bring to our Heavenly Father who is eager to hear from us. Now, if we stop at this point, we could acknowledge that this is, a, this is good truth. There's a good lesson here, you know. Trusting in God depends on knowing God's character. But in Psalm 20, there's more to it. There's another layer, another level. Remember, we could insert ourselves into the story that these prayers are for us, that this is for us in our day of trouble, that, that it's us that's seeking protection. But remember, it's, it's about the king. And so our second point this morning is that trusting in God depends on knowing God's promises to the king. Trusting in God depends on knowing God's promises to the king. Now, I'll admit, I am uh, largely ignorant and indifferent, even, to the monarchy. Canada has a queen. Uh, I know that is a fact, uh, but that's about the extent of my knowledge. There isn't a deep connection, personally, between me and the Queen of England. Uh, we see her on our money, but not all that often otherwise. And, and this could be different. Maybe you're a big, you know, royalty person. That's okay. Um, but I'm just speaking from my experience. Th there feels like there's a gap. It feels like there's a, there's a big distance between us. But this is very different for ancient Israel. Very, very different. Their identity is tied to their king. You can think of maybe a, a much smaller example of this is thinking of like a diehard sports fan. And maybe I'm describing you. When your team is succeeding, you are succeeding. Their victory is your victory. And when they lose, you are crushed. You're defeated. There's, there's parallel lines that go. And I know some of you, just because of our geography, know this reality all too true. That we tie our identity to a losing team. But um, even that example is just a sliver of the, the hope that would be tied for this nation to their king. If their king is doing well, if he is successful... It is directly tethered to the success of the nation. And this is far more than an emotional investment. Not only was the king's military success tied to the success of the nation, but also the king's moral success. The closer he walked with the Lord, uh, the, the better things went for them as a people. As the king prospered, so did the nation. As the king failed and floundered, so did the nation. A godly king brought stability, progress, and peace. And so it made sense that these prayers were being prayed. Because even though they're praying these prayers for the king, we do see now the link that, that these prayers for the king are for them too. Because they need, they, they, they need their king to, to do well in the eyes of the Lord. This is, this is why they're praying that he would, he would bring these sacrifices and these offerings and that God would, would see them. That the desires of the king would be in line with God's will. We see that in verse 4. And as you read your Bibles, you'll see this, this happening over and over, where depending how the king is doing often is depending how the nation is doing. When there's 
no king, right? We think of the, judge, the book of the judges. There, there's no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Things went bad fast. Or we think of examples where there's a wicked king. We see just the, the whole society crumble and spiral. We see this pattern over and over. But we also see examples of kings that, that were blessed in such a way that it blesses the whole nation. And one of those kings is King David, a man after God's own heart. Now, David was not perfect, far from it. But David was the man for the job. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we see the description of God making this covenant, this huge promise with David, the king of Israel. And this covenant, this promise is that David would be blessed. It was so much bigger than just his own prosperity or even his nation's prosperity in the time of his life. The promise, the covenant that, that God made with David was that from David's offspring, one would come who would reign. But not just as a king like David. He would reign in a new and better way. And the kingdom would last forever. And it is these promises that ground the prayers of God's people here in Psalm 20 for their king. And these petitions, they turn into emphatic statements. Where these aren't false confidence. It's a confidence in in God who makes promises and keeps promises. You see this in verse 6. Again, it, it's no longer a petition. Now it's a statement. Now I know that Yahweh saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. That's a good question to ask here again. Who is God's anointed? Who is God's anointed? Well, this, from Psalm 20, we're talking about the king. People and things were anointed in the Old Testament to signify holiness, to signify that they were set apart for God. And the word anointed uh, is the word that where we get the word Messiah, that one would be set apart, the awaited one, the one that is set apart for special purposes. And so this is what a godly king was for ancient Israel. He was the anointed one. He was the Messiah. And this is why the word is... The Messiah is used for Jesus. He was the expected Savior, the awaited one, the one that God's people were waiting for. And so we see this confidence that's in Psalm 20 is grounded in the promises that God has made to his anointed. He's made a promise to the king. And that grounds the prayers and it grounds the confidence of the nation. Now remember, by extension, God's provision for the king would be provision for the people. The king would bring blessing through the defeat of evil. And so this wasn't a proclamation of God's people saying, look how great we are. This is a proclamation of the reliance that they have on God. The trust that they have in God. And it becomes even clearer in verses 7 and 8. Again, this is well-known well -known verse. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of Yahweh our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. Horses and chariots were the measure of a military strength. Who was going to win the battle? Well, whoever had the most horses and chariots, most likely. But there's a profound trust that is expressed here that that is true. There's a deep trust in God, a deep trust in who he is. Again, look for the appeal in verse 7 to the name of the Lord, Yahweh, our God. It's this place of desperation, this day of trouble. Absolute hope is found in the name of God. 
And the Bible demonstrates this consistent pattern of God's power being displayed in the weakness of man. God doesn't need horses and chariots. Story after story, we see pattern after pattern play out. Story after story unravel through the Bible of God delivering and using those who are weak, who are inadequate, who are small. And so according to the world's standards at the time, if you didn't have chariots and horses, you were hopeless. You trusted in them. They were the foundation that you built your hope on if battle was on the horizon. But for God's people, they knew that all the horses and chariots in the world were not more powerful than God. And so they knew who to trust. And this leads us to a great question we all need to ask. I want you to ask yourself this question in your mind today. Where is my trust? Where is my trust? This is hammering the same nail that we hit repeatedly last week as we went through Obadiah. It is so easy for us to trust in the wrong things. It is so easy for us to build a foundation or stand on a foundation that is weak. Psalm 20 reminds us that even if we uh, might think we are trusting in the surest thing, horses and chariots for them, name whatever it is for you, these things collapse and fall. These are not the kind of foundations that can hold the weight that we need them to hold. But the hope here in Psalm 20 is that we don't have to collapse and fall. We can rise and stand upright. Think of all the ways that that can unweight the burdens of your life off of your shoulders. Now, burdens don't go away. But the constant pressure to be enough, to accomplish enough, to put all our trust in things that can't hold that kind of weight is a, a burden you don't need to carry. And this is because these promises that we see in Psalm 20 are perfectly fulfilled in Jesus. The deliverance that we need has come through Jesus' victory. Throughout the Old Testament, promises were made of one who would come to rescue all who would trust in him. That our king would come to finally save his people. And that happened on the cross where Jesus would collapse and fall so that you and I could stand upright. That he, even though he was completely sinless, would take on every sin, every failure so that we could be redeemed. And that in his resurrection, from the dead on the third day, he would rise in victory over sin and death. And the call that the Bible makes very clear is that we need to turn from our sin, turn from trusting in chariots and horses, and trust in Christ alone. It's our only hope today. We are prone to trust in all sorts of things. Maybe it's good works. Maybe it's your bank account. Maybe it's your success and reputation but those things as good as 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 they may they may have good things with them they are like horses and chariots they look really great from the outside but they they, they are not a foundation to build your life on and yet the pursuit that we 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 fall into the the, the message that we hear from the world around us is that we need to build this foundation we need to to put all of our hopes on these things that are fleeting 
gospel, the hope of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is that he can be trusted. He can bear that kind of weight. And so the call for us is to give up swearing allegiance to the temporal things of the world and to swear allegiance to him, our king. This morning, if your hope is tied in anything other than Christ, turn from your sin today and trust in him. He lived a righteous life so that by trusting in him, you could be credited with his righteousness. That is good news. So if you have questions about that, please come talk to me or talk to one of uh, the members, maybe whoever invited you about that. And for each of us, there is deep, deep relevance here. Because if you are in Christ, the connection between you and King Jesus is far more closely connected than even ancient Israel and their king. Jesus is our king. And we are united with him. His victory is our victory. He didn't need to be punished for anything, yet he took on the punishment that you deserved. He bore on himself your iniquity. By his stripes, you are healed. Jesus so identifies with his people. We see this consistent uh, through the New Testament as well, but he so identifies with his people. You look at the time when Saul is persecuting the church, the early church, and Jesus confronts him on the road to Damascus. What does Jesus say? He doesn't say, why are you persecuting my people? He says, why are you persecuting me? But all of this is why there is such a beautiful hope in Psalm 20, even a better hope than if we were reading these as, as promises for us individually. There is a rich, deep hope because it's not a psalm that teaches us how to pray a prayer that we would prosper on our own merit. It's a psalm that teaches us to rest in the hope that we have because we have a God who's made promises to the king. And these prayers are easily seen in the context of King David. We can look at the historical context and understand it and apply it. But it's even more perfectly realized when we consider the new and better King Jesus. Because Jesus didn't have to bring offerings and sacrifices like king david did because jesus was the ultimate sacrifice what jesus did on the cross is the ground for our hope and so when we pray today and we consider what christ did on the cross offering himself for us uh, to count us as righteous that's the hope we can pray this the same prayer we can appeal to god on the merits of christ that's why we pray in jesus name that's not a little tag we just add on to uh, our prayers because of tradition. It is only by him that we, we come to God. We pray in Jesus' name. We ground our hope in him and the sacrifice he made for us. And rather than even hoping like the Israelites would have had to do, hope that the, the king's will would be aligned with God's will, uh, in, like the, the prayers that are prayed, uh, may he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. There's, there's this hope that the king's will would be aligned with God's will. Well, we don't have to have those kinds of question marks because on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he called out to God in his day of trouble, in his day of distress, and he said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. And we can read with confidence verses like verse 6. Now I know that Yahweh saves his anointed, the Messiah. 
he will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Because we know that in the day of trouble, Jesus cried out to God while bearing the full weight of your sin. And we know that this prayer was answered by God from his holy heaven, by the strength of his right hand when Jesus rose victorious over the grave. And so we could trust in chariots and horses or whatever sure things that tempt us to ground our hope. But how could we when we know who God is, when we know his character, when we know what he's done and the promises that he's made? Those things we so easily trust in will collapse and fall. It's certain. But the hope of Psalm 20 is that we will rise and stand upright, not because we got our act together, not because we were good enough, but because Jesus was good enough for you. And we can respond with the prayer that we see in verse 9. Oh, Yahweh, save the king. May he answer us when we call. God has answered. God has answered and made a way for us to be saved. And how could we not respond in the same way that God's people respond? We see in verses 5, may we shout for joy over your salvation. And in the name of our God, set up our banners. We rejoice in the victory of Christ. His victory will bring blessing to the defeat of evil. And that is the banner we must raise as a church. We have no other argument. We have no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you that we do not have to come to you appealing to our righteousness. But we come to you appealing to your great mercy. We come to you in the powerful name of Jesus, our Savior and our King. Oh God, we thank you that you have made promises and that you keep promises. That what would have just been a glimmer of hope for people who have sung this song for generation after generation until Jesus came, now we see perfectly realized in Christ that you have made promises that through your anointed we would have a blessing beyond comparison. So God, we thank you that this psalm is not about us, but that it is for us, that Christ is for us. God, remind us of his amazing power, your mind-boggling mercy as we share in the Lord's Supper together. We pray all these things in our King Jesus' name. Amen.